Hi, and welcome to the Delta Dialogue. In this podcast, we talk about open data, open medical data and AI from above and beyond and explore its implications to our world. On this episode of our series on the Delta Dialogue, we will discuss the power of open source AI and data democracy. I'm your host, Amir Mustafa. I am joined today by my co-host and commentator, David Wood, and our guest speaker, Bart Devita. He is an expert on digital transformation in healthcare in Europe. Uh, he is the initiator of the Berlin-based nonprofit organization, Hippo AI Foundation, which aims to make AI in medicine a com- community asset, creating a foundation for a sustainable and equitable society. The tech giant's perspective of our digital identity as it's be- uh, becoming increasingly significant. How can we establish digital rights that protect privacy, autonomy, and dignity, particularly in a landscape that is dominated by the tech giants? Digital identity becomes more and more a thing. So we we see that um, people can create avatars um, that look exactly the same, behave exactly the same as the original data donators. Um, um, Some people are extremely, um, how do you say that, um, they're not sensitive about sharing the data and creating an avatar that really copies themselves. Like there's a company called avatar.ai or no, replica.ai, which collects all your data and it creates a replica of yourself. But if you look in the terms and conditions, yeah, you have the right to pull back your data, but you don't have any right on your AI model. So the model that is a replica of yourself is not in your ownership. So that means we need um, new digital rights, like um, rights that protect our right to integrity. Um, All these things that we have seen in the analog world are are not being um, translated into a digital context. Um, Like in the European Fundamental um, Charter, there is in Article 3, which is the right for um, integrity, written that your body and parts of your body cannot be used for economical purposes. Of course, that was had something to do with you're not allowed to sell your organs, you're not allowed to um, uh, do anything with this, but it was a protection for human integrity. Now, when you duplicate your body and your behavior and everything and you can create an avatar that 100% simulates you, in this world today, people can use this for economical purposes. So I'm a strong defender that we need that same right of integrity on our digital self. We need to um, see that um, a person is not only a biological entity anymore. We are also an an informational identity. We are not only explicitly out of molecules, but also out of bits and bytes. That's that's what defines our identity. Um, It was a very good... A philosopher in Oxford, um, Luciano Floridi, who, who did research on that, that um, he, he talked about the personal um, um, identity in, in the digital realm, realm as well. And I think we can learn a lot from his work because he also says, like, we are not only a biological identity anymore, or a self anymore. We, are, we exist out of an informational self and a biological self. Now, if, if one understands this, that we have that uh, in, informational identity, and then you look at a recent survey from Razorfish last year where they asked 
based on the classification of different generations, they asked, where do you feel mostly yourself? Then Generation Z felt mostly themselves in the metaverse or in the digital world. That means their behavior and everything what they do and is defined on their informational identity, which is something they don't own and is a guest on a platform that more resembles a feudalistic system where somebody is a gatekeeper that can control and define terms and conditions, but not human rights. And that's the environment these people, this younger generation is behaving and connecting. Um, and I find this to be very dangerous when I think about this, because you are suddenly defining your life and yourself in a world that is owned by some sort of feudal lord, call it Zuckerberg or whatever, uh, Elon Musk or whatever, who that is, who defines then the rules on how we communicate, how we, what we can tell, how we behave, who am I, what my predictions are. And I think um, we have um, not enough discussions about this, but I think ownership and digital identity become, and digital rights are becoming extremely important uh, if we want to protect the rights of our future generations. Uh, because otherwise we're going to go through exactly the same process as we did in our analog world, fighting feudalism, fighting those um, who created or, or doing exactly what we did with the Enlightenment, creating transparency, creating openness, access to knowledge. We're we, we kind of repeating blindfully that what happened um, um, from the moment from the mid European Middle Ages to that what we receive now. And I think we need to, when we duplicate our world through data, uh, and, and we are living in these digital worlds, then in these digital worlds we need exactly the same protection, not even more, as what we had in the analog world. On this topic, especially since you also mentioned uh, feudal lords, uh, call it Zuckerberg, call it Elon Musk, but in a world tending towards this kind of data concentration, what steps can societies then take to counteract digital feudalism and and establish digital public spaces that encourage the democratization of data and knowledge? That, that's a good question. I don't have all the answers on it. And I think David already addressed that. I, I'm not against Web3 or and tokenization, but I think um, there is part of the solution perhaps in, 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 the, in that technology, although the, the way how it's set up and the people behind these um, systems mostly are within that same space where cryptocurrency scams are happening and all that. So perhaps I'm totally biased because of that and I don't have a clear view. I don't know. But if you look at history again, what did we do in history? We created public libraries. Um, the Assyrians had um, medical texts as public texts. Um, the, um, the Library of Alexandria in Egypt was a public library creating uh, public access. The uh, 600 B um, BC, there was uh, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, which was uh, an open knowledge system where they had a translation movement. Um, we were living in the Dark Ages in Europe, but uh, Baghdad was flourishing. They called it the Golden Age of Islam uh, because they were translating knowledge from China, from Jewish texts, from others, and making that publicly available uh, in public libraries. Um, Cicero did the same in Rome, and then we started doing in our modern societies, the same. We have everywhere public libraries. These are free spaces where you can access knowledge in a, in a physical realm, the university library, the city library, everything else. Now, 
in today's world, they spend more money on the architecture of the building as the content itself. And I recently had a discussion with a city mayor of uh, Zurich, and I asked her where the, the digital libraries were for their citizens. Um, not open data, but really libraries. Like, what can we do? Because the biggest library today is owned by Microsoft, and it's called GitHub. And that's the digital library of digital tools. And I think in, in analog to that, that former world where we had public libraries, our public infrastructure needs to invest in public libraries. Like, it cannot be that one single company in Redmond, California, is the biggest host of our digital libraries. Um, and, and we all dependent. They do a really great job in giving access. So I don't criticize them. I think GitHub is an amazing place. And Microsoft, after they acquired it, an amazing job um, stabilizing that and giving access. But I ask myself, especially in the field of healthcare, where are our digital libraries that give each single person democratized access? Uh, where are these uh, public spaces where we don't have to pay for access? And I can relate to that. Everybody's aware of the case where we did the same thing when we moved um, in the public library. We had scientific journals. I didn't have to pay to read a scientific journal um, in a university library. But now today in a digital world, I need a license in order to read a PDF on the internet. And I pay... Elsevier or Springer more um, to access knowledge that was funded by public uh, resources. And these companies like Elsevier and Springer, they are more profitable as Google uh, is or as Amazon is. And they take public assets and put it behind a paywall. I think we, should need, we need to learn from that mistake because now we're fighting for so-called open access libraries in the scientific publishing community. But that means that we have to pay eight to ten thousand dollars to publish an open access uh, pa <laughs> um, uh, paper, which is totally ridiculous from my from my perspective. And I think here the government missed a huge opportunity to create public spaces. And I see the same thing now happening when it comes to data and AI models. We need public libraries for that. So who do you think is going to take the lead? Will there be new entities like Wikipedia, which created a free encyclopedia which rendered a lot of the previous commercial libraries encyclopedias uh, second class or will it be some other mechanism to create these open I, I hope it's a mixture from everyone um, I, I aim to do the same uh, because I don't believe I don't see the governments doing anything I've, I've worked 20 years in that space um, and uh, so we are building a platform where we're exactly doing that we are at the moment uh, creating a library where we want to create the largest machine learning library for, medic for the medical space. Uh, we're doing the same in data um, and kind of creating the same principles as what we did with uh, what GitHub did for software. We're doing the same for medicine. Um, and that's what we are striving for, um, that we create these libraries. But there will be open source license. So anybody who wants to build these libraries or copies these libraries is available to do so. But um, I... I I unfortunately don't see the government doing it. Um, the European Union has billions of uh, research funding. They created something, what they call the scientific cloud or the science cloud, completely failed. Um, I don't think governments are really good in building these things themselves. Uh, but um, um, 
yeah, it's a good question. Like it should be at least in a model, like we're doing our platform in a for-profit model. We cannot do that differently to get the funding, but the for-profit platform is under stewardship of the non-profit. Um, now people will say this is a bit similar than OpenAI. No, there is a difference. Like <laughs> our non-profit is really accelerating open source and OpenAI doesn't do that. So we want to create this stewardship model so we get the trust from the community uh, to build these models. So um, yeah, perhaps it's me or we or us. Um, uh, we will see who gets the, the biggest trust. But at least what we found out, there is a strong need for publishers to um, have a library where they can store these things. Like at the moment, they don't they store it at GitHub, right? which is definitely not a place to store medical AI or medical data on. Well, why not, just to be clear? Um, try to find a model based on clinical terms in, in GitHub. So it needs a new interface, a new search interface. So it could still be stored in there, but maybe there could be a tool that uh, helps you find it. Yes, and there is also the, like you can find it only today um, through research papers. And then in the research paper, there is a link uh, um, referred to the <coughs> storage. It's not only GitHub. Like I know many clinician friends who store it at the web server of the university hospital. And we created a service called askpaper.ai <clears throat> in order uh, to help people to get faster access to these links. So with Ask Paper, there was a browser extension. Every time people read papers, they can click on the browser extension and expect the links to the data sets. And similar to the pocket browser extension, it gets stored into personal accounts. So they can um, extract all that information from a paper uh, and then store it themselves. And, and Based on that technology, we are building now a data set search engine um, that will extract then the information out of these papers so we can um, create a centralized storage. But uh, the problem is, like, I don't think GitHub will verticalize in healthcare. I've been a product manager myself. It doesn't make any sense for generic platforms to create a verticalized solution uh, because you, you add up so many maintenance costs. Um, so I think verticalization of these things is... Um, a, a, a really good way to go, and there are. Um, we have been using Mesh as a, from the National Institute of um, Health, which is a clinical uh, classification system. So we can filter it down on dermatology and gene types or whatever. Um, so people can find it really fast. So if you do it in your foundation, it's going to cost a lot of money. Obviously, Wikipedia survives because it has a lot of donations. Can we come back to this question of business model? How would you and your team be financially, uh, have your finances covered for, for the service that you provide? Yeah, that's why we are setting up the regenerative AI framework with the health data offsetting. Uh, so we believe in, and based on our interviews and research, that uh, there are many companies that want to support the development, but um, there's no incentive at the moment for them. But if they receive a better ESG score by supporting these developments, then um, um, there will be an incentive. And we will use them that funds through granting um, to support these initiatives. Uh, that's, that's one way. The second way is, as I mentioned, the foundation is, um, is, is in stewardship with the for-profit. But in the for-profit, we will have certain added value services that are not for free, as with all these platforms. Um, if you want to close, if you want to use that platform for closed developments, you will have to pay licenses. But everything, so we turn everything upside down. Like GitHub, 80% of the services are for free or used 
uh, are for free for non-paying customers. But um, those who want to close things, they pay actually the whole maintenance of the platform. So there are ways to do this, but I don't want to, uh, before we have taken all the decisions, uh, uh, go too far with my, with my assumptions here. But we are experimenting uh, on the foundation level. It's with the hell data offsetting and on the platform itself. Um, we will work as well with um, so-called freemium services uh, that stick to the principles that we have, but allow us as well to create some revenue streams in there. So you've got options. That's encouraging. And you could be assisted if governments put more focus on ESG scores somehow. If they may decide themselves, governments are only going to procure services from companies or organizations that have got high ESG scores, including this new uh, measurement that you're proposing. So they could help out. If they don't pay for it directly, they can help to set the environment that encourages companies to support you. Uh, definitely, because it's all about sustainability. And I think we need to think more in, in that way as well when it comes to healthcare, uh, to in order to avoid that what we've seen in the US, which is a non-sustainable system at the moment. And I think one way is through the governments, but I think procurement and then putting these metrics uh, into procurement systems. I've been doing interviews with the largest procurement systems in uh, Europe, and they would embrace uh, such transparency. Um, if they can choose between AI systems that are sustainable, uh, and those who are extractive, or are regenerative and extractive, they will always prefer the regenerative systems um, in order than the extractive. Because the extractive always lead to more power asymmetries. And as a buyer, you don't want to support things that lead to more power asymmetries because you're going you're, you're gonna to have a weaker position negotiating uh, with these uh, organizations. As a final question to you, Bart, can you outline the steps that individuals uh, or professionals and organizations actually can take to actively contribute to the development of uh, open source AI, uh, especially in healthcare and ensure its benefits uh, reach everyone? Thank you for, for asking that question. So first of all, my, my journey, educate yourself. People have no clue what open source is. Open source is not about giving everybody free beer. Open source is about giving everybody the ability to brew their own beer. That is a big difference. Like It's not about we're going to be here sharing everything for free. It's about allowing people to be independent and free to create and brew their own beer. So that's the first learning, but there is so much that you need to learn. What is open source? What are the principles? So familiarize yourself before you start having discussions. And then as a physician, I would definitely start looking into the future because if everything starts to become an asset, I believe that the physicians go through the same fate as the pharmacist at the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, the pharmacists were still the owners and creators of pharmaceutical knowledge. Like they were producing their own drugs, they had it was very. Uh, it was not industrialized. And then, at the beginning of the 19th, uh, 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 beginning of the, uh, it was not 19th, 18th century, end of 18th century, beginning 19th century. Uh, or oh, no, no, it was right. End of 19th, beginning uh, 20th century, uh, the big pharma came, and then the pharmacists lost, lost all their uh, ownership of knowledge, and they became salespersons of of, of pharmaceutical products. And they lost their power. They lost 
knowledge is power, they lost ownership. So if physicians don't really embrace open source, they will go through the same fate. And big pharma will not be big pharma. Like in, in their case, it will be big tech owning the knowledge. And they will be in power asymmetries to this information. So in order um, to avoid this, the, the only way for them is to democratize. And the difference between the 19th century and today is that the cost of massive collaboration is nearly zero. We, we are talking here to a system. We are hosted somewhere else, somewhere else, uh, on our laptop at home. Uh, just mentioned Tim Thurn uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who created the internet. Cost of collaboration since then and now is nihil. So physicians can globally organize themselves and collaborate. Um, so that means they can participate in communities such as ours. We just released three weeks ago our Discord server, and we have over 1,000 physicians, AI researchers in our community, which is something you can reach through askpaper.ai. And what we try to do is to give these physicians as much tools and resources as possible. And we soon will start with education uh, uh, content that we learn them how to build these things. So um, participate, educate yourself as well, contribute. That means as a physician, you can perhaps contribute by annotating data sets. When you publish, publish it under the right license. When you publish it, make it searchable, findable, um, uh, accessible. Um, and as well, when you procure as a physician, prefer open source tools. Like um, I know so many physicians who are using ChatGPT, where are, there are many alternatives today. So if you use these tools, try to as well prefer open source. And then last but not least, um, if you, um, over time, if you want to use these models, provide feedback. So we can also have the human in loop in there and then um, together um, um, increase the performance of these open source models. So if somebody's listening and they say, oh, I shouldn't be using ChatGPT, I should be using an open source tool instead, where do they go? How do they find it? Uh, it depends which model. Uh, the biggest tool now, our platform, is Hugging Face. Uh, on Hugging Face, there are models that you can search. Um, there is Open Assistant, uh, there is Llama, there are many different out there that um, are open sourced. Llama is not really open sourced in complete sense, but it's still better than OpenAI. And um, Hugging Face offers as well a playground where you can use these things. Um, um, but there are many, many systems out there that are already based on these open source models. So always look what is in the engine. Uh, it's driven by um, OpenAI or if it's driven by an open source model. Although we are still at the very early phase, so it might be that you have to use OpenAI because they, for your specific domain, there is not an alternative yet, but that is rapidly changing. Um, there, is, there is so much coming out. Uh, there is Hugging Faces, one million users now. They were two years ago with 100,000 users. There is massive growth in these communities. And I think we're just at the beginning uh, of that transformation from closed versus open. Um, so again, it comes to the basic thing, educate yourself um, uh, about these things. Open source is not for nerds. Um, it becomes relevant to all of us. I want to ask uh, Bart if you have any uh, closing remarks, uh, anything you want to share? Well, um, anybody wants to uh, join us, uh, we are a nonprofit open source community. We have um, the first service that we created out for free is askpaper.ai. 
There is a Discord link. You can join us. Uh, we are here to change the world. As you probably heard from the last hour, we have a, we stick to our principles. Uh, so everybody who wants to join, we have people from everywhere. Uh, we will start working with the community. We are building our platform together with the community. Uh, we follow as well the principles of open source doing that. So anybody wants to join, uh, feel free to reach out. And uh, whenever um, you are in discussions, don't try to be distracted from um, the lobbyist arguments that open source will lead to bad actors having the power to act badly. That is an absolutely bogus argument. Um, um, it, Gutenberg was also confronted with monks who said, oh, giving everybody a book is as dangerous as giving a candle to a child. Um, the monks were also opposing. This is all a matter of authority. Um, and people always fight, who, who have the authority, fight democracy. So think further than just the plain discussions uh, and, and make it part of your conversation. Because um, we all go in the age of the Enlightenment 2.0 or we go in the age of the what, I, what we call the Dislightenment. And, and this is all defined by what we together do together. Now, how can people find the Discord? Is it a matter of going searching for Hippo online and then following links? HippoAI.org. Um, there is a link to the Discord server. Um, we are a .org. So HippoAI.org. Not Hippo.ai. That's not our domain. But HippoAI.org. Um, that's where you find us. I've been fascinated by what I've heard. I think this regenerative AI framework is an idea whose time is very due. So I look forward to seeing what will happen when more and more people can cooperate and collaborate, as Bart says, at almost zero cost. So let's take advantage of the tools that we have, cooperate at almost zero cost. So what will be done by all these people together? But I'm also fascinated to see what the reaction of the current owners of the large data lakes will be, how Google, OpenAI, Microsoft, and Facebook Meta will respond, because they have a big role in this future world too. We see a mixture of signs. Some of it's encouraging, like Meta having released Llama, partially as open source, so that's a step in the right direction. So I look forward to collaboration of a sort there too, rather than an antagonism, because you know, there are room for multiple models here rather than just a, a religious, uh, pure ideology. I think we saw during COVID what can happen when we open the walls of collaboration. We were never as fast um, in innovation as back then. And it, the reason why was because we had a shared enemy. And shared enemy is always a good reason to collaborate. Um, we have seen this in Europe now um, during the last two years. Uh, and I always make this joke that the, the global world, the Chinese, the Americans and the Europeans and the Russians and the Africans will collaborate when Death Star from Star Trek is threatening to destroy the world. That's the moment where we collaborate. So what more is this healthcare to collaborate when we all are confronted with some deadly disease somehow that is our little Death Star and we all work together to eliminate uh, these Death Stars but making them accessible to everyone. I think it's a very good reason to collaborate. Thank you for listening to the Delta Dialogue. This episode is brought to you by the UN, a tech community focused on artificial intelligence in healthcare, machine learning, and related disciplines. I am Emir Mustafa, and see you next time.